It is January 28th, 2009, and our message this evening is Being Verbs. Uh, there are no teachers in our midst tonight, but I have the good fortune of having a couple in my family. I called them to quiz them about being verbs on the way to church tonight. And my mother, who is a math teacher, quickly informed me that she is a math teacher and not an English teacher. And my sister, who is well studied in early language development, did not answer her phone. So whatever I preach now can only be attributed to me, and they cannot be held responsible for it. But I was taught in school that a being verb could also be called a linking verb. And God forgive me, the very first one that came to mind is Jennifer is tall. In this case, is is a being verb or a linking verb. And it's meant to link Jennifer with the adjective tall. All right? That means that that is her state of being. She doesn't have to try to be tall. She doesn't have to hope or long to be tall. It simply is what she is. This is why we call it a being verb, as in state of being. There are eight words that are considered being verbs. Normally, it's am, is, was, were, are, be, being, and been. Maybe the most famous use of a being verb in all of the world is God's statement, I am. This is a very simple but profound way to say, I exist. What do you need to know about me? You need to know, I exist. And the implication is, I exist without the aid of anything else. As we talk about being verbs tonight, we're going to move to a chapter in Matthew that that simple understanding should change the way that we view the chapter in Matthew. But before we get there, we're going to go to the book of Deuteronomy. So turn to the 28th chapter. We will start in the first verse. And I want to see if we can clear away some of the mystery with the words blessing and curse. Have you ever heard that somebody had a curse put on them? Yes. Uh, crazy teachings float through churches sometimes. And sometimes it's not so crazy teachings. It's just crazy explanations or uh, maybe bad terminology. An undeserving curse will not come to rest on a Christian, period. It's like a fluttering butterfly that will not land. But when we think of curse or blessing, we need not be overly spiritual. That sounds like a strange thing to say coming from a pastor standing behind a pulpit reading from a spiritual book. But sometimes we tend to think of a curse like a mist or something that lands on someone. The reason the Bible can say that an undeserving curse will never come to rest on someone is because it does not work like that. You cannot simply decide blessing and it happen. You cannot decide curse and it happen. These are the byproduct of doing something. They're the byproduct of being something. No different than as long as Gabe is sitting in that chair, he is not falling. But if he steps out of an airplane, whether he wants to or not, he will fall. There are laws at work with these things, and we see them illustrated in Deuteronomy 28. It says, If you fully obey the Lord your God and carefully follow all of His commandments I give you today, the Lord your God will set you high above the nations on the earth. God put His people in a valley. He put representatives on Mount Gerizim, he put representatives on Mount Ebal, and he began to speak to his people blessings. 
said, if you do what I tell you, you're going to be set high above all the nations. You're going to be blessed. Then from the other mountain, he says, if you do not do what I'm telling you, you will be cursed. That does not sound very spiritual, does it? Sounds a little bit like saying, if you jump in the pool, you will be wet. If you do not jump in the pool, you will be dry. And yet, somehow or another, we find ourselves at times in places in life where either we or someone we're sitting across from act as if something strange has happened to them. My life is cursed and I don't know how it got this way. There's such a mess all around me, destruction everywhere, and go figure, I don't know whose fault it is, but it can't be mine. I found myself in one such conversation this week. And all I could think about was, are you not experiencing the sum total of your actions? But before those words could come out of my mouth, I remembered that I am not being made to experience the sum total of my actions. There was a variable that was thrown in the mix called mercy. And I'm an object of mercy. So before I look at someone else's life and neatly sum it up as a blessing or a curse, I need to take into account that our God is full of mercy. Look at verse 9. The Lord will establish you as His holy people, as He promised you on oath, if you keep the mitzvahs, the commands of Yahweh, your God, and walk in His ways, then all the peoples of the earth will see that you are called by the name of Yahweh and they will fear you. If you keep the Lord's commands, then what will happen? The nations will notice. Isn't that an amazing thing? Have you ever felt like if you did everything right, nobody noticed? But the moment you step out of line, the whole world comes down on you? Yes. I mean, at work, isn't that how it works? Yes. Yep. I mean, if you get all of your day's events right, nobody says anything. But if you should foul one up, the office email chatter begins to, to work. You can hear the keys, people picking up phones. You get home, and they've already called your mom to tell them. God says that when we keep His commands, the nations will notice. I want to show you one more thing before we leave Deuteronomy. Two more things. Look at verse 15. However, if you do not obey the Lord your God and do not carefully follow all of His commands and decrees I am giving you today, all these curses will come upon you and overtake you. This is not a complicated formula. Obedience brings blessing. Disobedience brings curse. And yet, how many books are written about how to achieve the blessings of God? We act as if it's a mystical formula. When we do what He tells us to do, the result is blessing. When we do not do what He tells us to do, something we're not very quick to admit, the result is curse. This is not an evil malintent that the Lord is cursing you. The Lord didn't curse you. He said in the beginning, no different than gravity, when you don't do the things I have commanded you, it results in a curse. So who cursed you? We curse ourselves. Turn with me to Deuteronomy 30. I've often heard it said of the revelation at Sinai that it was meant to restrain the people. That it was meant to uh, magnify their sin to them. 
And I don't deny that those are results of the revelation at Sinai. But I want you to understand that the revelation at Sinai is no different than the revelation at the cross. It's no different than the revelation at the empty tomb or at Pentecost or any other time God speaks. When His Word goes forth, we have two options before us. Obedience that brings blessing or disobedience that brings curse. That is not subject to debate. That's not something that's open to interpretation. The Word simply says it. Doing what He says to do produces blessing. Not doing what He says to do produces curse. So it doesn't matter whether He tells you to stand on your head, lay on your back, or shout from a mountain top. You have that choice before you. And here's how it's phrased in Deuteronomy 30, starting in verse 11. Now what I am commanding you today is not too difficult for you or beyond your reach. It is not up in heaven so that you have to ask who will ascend into heaven to get it and proclaim it to us so that we may obey it. Nor is it beyond the sea so that you have to ask who will cross the sea to get it to proclaim it to us that we may obey it. No, the word is very near you. It is in your mouth and in your heart so that you may obey it. What word is he speaking of? The revelation at Sinai. Paul uses these words to talk about a later revelation as well. It's not far from us. It's not somewhere that you have to travel a great distance to get it. It's not beyond your reach. God has made it plainly available for a reason. See, I have set before you today life and prosperity, death and destruction. Anytime God's Word goes out to any group of people for any reason, it is both life and death. It is both prosperity and destruction. And you say, well, then the Word is flawed. There is no flaw in the Word. The Word reveals flaw in us. It's our reaction to the Word that determines whether we live in prosperity or destruction. It's our reaction to the Word that determines whether or not we live or die. The Word never changes. The Word is immutable. We, however, are fickle. We have to set our will to do things. It's with that in mind that I wanted to look at a familiar passage of Scripture. I, I didn't want to beat us down. I didn't want to say, oh, you're bringing curse upon yourself. Most of your lives are completely blessed. And yet, when you can look and see that there's an area that's not blessed, I can assure you there is not some mystical problem. There's not something that is in the heavens that you can't obtain or across seas that you have to swim for. It's simply an area that we have not decided to be obedient to the Word. Either we don't know how, we haven't been able to accomplish it, or we're just ignorant of our disobedience to it. But in any area of our lives that we do not prosper, this is the problem. It's a good word, but you won't hear it from Oprah Winfrey. You won't hear it from Dr. Phil. You won't hear it from anyone who is popular because it puts the burden squarely upon our backs and we're uncomfortable with that. God has already told us what to do. It's our job to decide whether or not we want to live in blessing or in curse. Did you notice that He put life and prosperity before death and destruction? Even with the revelation at Sinai that some view so negatively, unjustly, but they do, He did not say, See, I have set before you today death and destruction. He said, I set before you life 
and prosperity. This is the intent of the law at Sinai, of the grace at the cross, of the power of the resurrection, of all of God's Word. But it just so happens that it is the great dividing line in history that all men must come to and make their decision. When God's Word becomes real to you, when it seeks, stops, ceases to be just words on a page and comes alive in your life to where you realize that you must act, that is life or death. And we make those choices on a regular basis. And yet we're mystified sometimes by their results. Turn with me to Matthew. All of the world can be divided into those two categories. It sounds nice and neat when we say it that way, and in reality, while all of the world can be divided into those two categories, I sometimes manage to live in both. <clears throat> Am I the only man in this church that at times finds myself in blessing and other times curse? No. Well, I wish I could say I was happy to hear that, but I wish that you were all already glorified <laughs> and that I was just waiting for a little more rotation of the earth to see the sun and uh, have it happen. Turn to Matthew 5. It's a funny thing. This has gone down in history as the B attitudes. B is a being verb. That means... That because each of these sentences starts with blessed are something. Whatever it is. Blessed are the meek. Blessed are the pure. Blessed are the peacemakers. Blessed are, blessed are, blessed are. This is to inextricably link the blessing of God to an attribute. Not that you have to try to be blessed if you are this. Not that you hope to be blessed if you are this. You are blessed if you are this. See, this sounds more like mathematical precision than mystical Eastern philosophy. That's right. This is phrased this way for a reason. But in all of our studies of the be attitudes, we often forget to be those attitudes. These are called linking verbs or being verbs because you are supposed to be in that state of being. Blessed are the poor in spirit. If you are poor in spirit, you do not have to wonder if you are blessed. You don't have to ask to be blessed. You don't have to seek the front row's approval to receive your blessing. Because it says, blessed are the poor in spirit. You can turn the sentence around. The poor in spirit are blessed. That is a link between those two things. Then the question becomes, well, what does it mean to be poor in spirit? How many of you went into the store and said, Hey, you know, how are you? I'm Fred, I'm Eric, I'm Cody. Uh, I'm poor in spirit. <laughs> you know, I met a man one time, shook my hand, he said, Hi, I'm barely, barely saved. <laughs> I thought it was funny for about 20 seconds, then I wanted to get away from the man. How dare us joke about a subject like that, right? wonder where he is today. Yeah. Can you be barely in hell? No. You're in hell. Barely pregnant? How's that work? Blessed are the poor in spirit. So what does it mean? Keep your finger here. I'm going to turn through a few of these. I really don't intend, ironically enough, to teach on the Beatitudes tonight. 
There's something else that I want to get to about linking verbs here. But keep your hand here. Turn with me to Isaiah 66. Isaiah 66. And uh, when I get there, I'll know it when I see it. How about that? Here we go. Isaiah 66, 2. Has not my hand made all these things? And so they came into... <clears throat> Yeah, how about that? Declares the Lord. This is the one I esteem. He who is humble and contrite in spirit and trembles at my word. While your hand is still in Matthew 5, turn to Psalm 34. I'm doing this to help you determine what poor in spirit is. In Psalm 34, you will see around the 18th verse. The Lord is close to the brokenhearted. He saves those who are crushed in spirit. One of the young men in the church presented to me a truth, a truth that's written in my Bible now, I will never forget it. There's a progression in the Beatitudes. It goes from a broken or contrite spirit to a penitent heart, to somebody who wields power with humility to somebody who hungers for God's righteousness, to somebody who sees the kingdom of God. This is a progression in a man's life. I'm telling you this about blessed are the poor in spirit because the beginning of where everything starts with God, the beginning of His favor being blessed, is having a broken heart that He can put back together. So what is it about God that likes a broken heart? When you understand the world as it is, and you begin to see that there's a need for change, and not just the world as it is, your life as it really is. How many people do you know that are lost, that say, yes, my life's a shamble and my heart is broken? It doesn't happen very... Even if you listen to country music, it doesn't happen that often. Even in the country music, the end of the song is, but they're happy because they have their beer, their dog, and their guitar. You want to be blessed in life? All you have to do is be broken over what's wrong. Because that is the beginning of wanting something to change. That's the beginning of all wisdom. That's where Christianity starts. Now here's the good news. As you're hearing this, you could say the broken in spirit, the crushed in spirit, the poor in spirit, the contrite of heart are blessed. They don't have to try to be. They're not striving for it. They are favored by God. Blessed. So what does that mean for you if you're broken hearted? You're favored by God. How about the next one? Blessed are those who mourn. Well, mourn over what? People mourn over all kinds of things. In its context, we're talking about being repentant. Mourning over the brokenness. Wanting to see change. Sorrowful over the way you are and the world is and wanting something that is better. That kind of person will always be comforted. God's favor, His blessing is upon them. It's inextricably linked. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Be, a being verb, filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called sons of God. It's an amazing thing when you hear terms like these. They've become just terms to us. 
I stood in Israel. I heard a man read these in Hebrew. Another man translate them in Greek and yet another into English for those of us that were Americans. And it sounds eloquent. It sounds poetic. They did it in King James English so that it was very appealing to the ear. But if you're not careful, they just become words. These are things that we are to be in the state of being and then you are inextricably linked to blessing. How do you be a peacemaker? How do you be in the state of being a peacemaker? You remember I told you I was going to teach you about ethics of our fathers? You remember? And then I told you I lied. I didn't do it on the Sunday. Lying's not how you obtain the blessing of God. I'm repenting now. I'm Teshuba. I'm turning around and I want to read you something out of ethics of our fathers. See, a man lived before Jesus did. He's one of the greatest teachers of his day and everyone in Israel listened to his words. Jesus often quoted him, paraphrased him, and in some cases took what the man said and enhanced it. But this is what he had to say about making peace. Hillel and Shammah received the tradition from them. Hillel said, be of the disciples of Aaron, loving peace, pursuing it mightily, Loving every single person. And in this way, drawing each one nearer to God's life-giving instruction. The Torah. This was to be coupled with Psalm 34. In Psalm 34, 14, he says, Seek peace and pursue it. The idea when you heard the word peacemaker was not someone who was in the state of being nothing, being Switzerland, neutral and everything. It was someone who pursued a right standing, shalom, peace, with God. They pursued it even if it tried to evade them. They fought for it. This was the idea of peacemaker when Jesus said it and put that in this sentence. And what you have is people who pursue a right standing with God are in God's favor. Blessed are the peacemakers. What does your God want from you? He wants you to do whatever it takes to be in right standing with Him. This is how Romans 12, 18 says, as far as it's possible, I mean, as much as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. That doesn't mean that you're never going to have an argument with people. How many times did Paul get into arguments with people in the Scripture? And I'm not just talking about Barnabas. He told a whole group of people to emasculate themselves. He called Cretans... Sluggards, brutes, and liars. We're not talking about someone who never stepped on a flower. We're talking about doing whatever it took to be in right standing with God. That means being at war when He wants you at war. That means being civil when He wants you to be civil. Doing whatever it takes. But again, I didn't come tonight to preach about the Beatitudes or even ethics of our fathers. I wanted to talk about our state of being. Because the world can be divided into two groups. There are people in this world that are blessed. They are linked to God's favor. And there are those that are not. And according to what you see in these Beatitudes, when you are poor or broken hearted, when you are repentant, when you're meek, a way to think of meekness, by the way, is having power but only using it at God's discretion. Or as one Bible commentator said, 
being humble in your use of power, being hungry for God, being full of mercy, being pure, being the kind of person that pursues right standing with God. And the last one he said is being persecuted. These things put you in a state of God's favor, His blessing. Well, what is the other category? This is not hard to figure out. It's the opposite of what puts you in God's favor. What earns a person a curse? Not being broken hearted. I've got it all together. I'm okay. Don't look any deeper. They're rich in their own attitude towards themselves. Instead of being mournful over what they see, they're stubborn about everything that goes on around them. Resistant to change of any kind. Instead of being meek in their use of power, they're arrogant in their use of power. As if everything belongs to them. As if their life is their own to control. Instead of being hungry for things that are righteous, what brings a curse? When you have no taste for things that are righteousness. You would rather be entertained than do what is right. You would rather do what is expedient than what is right. These things earn a curse. Rather than being merciful, you want to earn a curse? Be vengeful. Look for an opportunity to do harm to someone. Instead of being pure, be tiny. Have a skeptical view of everything around you. Look at everything through dimly lit glasses instead of what it can be. You want to earn a curse instead of pursuing peace? Start dissension. Cause problems. Wherever you go, spread a little bit of slander and a little bit of gossip. These things earn curse. That's what they do. It produces it the same way jumping in a pool produces you getting wet. How about this one? If you are blessed when you are persecuted, when you're in the state of persecution, God's favor rests upon you. Well, what does it mean when all men speak well of you? We need to be careful that we don't substitute crowds for God's glory. We need to be careful that we don't look for the approval of men instead of the favor of God because the two rarely go hand in hand. You show me a great man of faith in the Bible that was well received in his day. Show me one. Noah tried to save the entire world and spent 120 years working diligently. And how many people liked him? There's a group of people in this world that exist in a state of being blessed, favored by God, and there are others that are cursed. It's not that God does not love them. It's that their actions are disobedient and that brings a curse as surely as jumping in a pool gets you wet. A believer is called to influence the world around us. We're not called to simply be blessed. Abraham was blessed to be a blessing, to be in the state of blessing others. God had showed him favor so that he could be in the state of showing favor to others. So how is it then that we bless people? How on earth can you be a blessing to someone? How interesting it is in these next few verses the way this is said with a being verb. Verse 13. You are the salt of the earth. He did not say, you have the salt of the earth. He didn't say you possess it. You can dispense some of it, keep some of it. You can keep uh, 90% and give away 10. He said you are. You are in the state of being salt. He says the same thing about light. 
You're in the state of being light. This means that a believer does not influence the world around him through what he has. He influences the world around him by being who he is. By simply being in the state of being that God wants you. You are the salt of the earth, but if the salt loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? What is your state of being that's a blessing? It's when Christ dwells in you. When you have been remade, when the very substance of who you are is the character of Jesus, then we are something that brings life everywhere we go simply by being. You don't have to try. You don't have to work really hard at it. You just exist in that state and everywhere you go, it will bring life. But if you lose the character, the attitude of Christ, what are you really good for? Mm. To be trampled on by men. You are the light of the world. A city on a hilltop cannot be hidden. Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on its stand and it gives its light to everyone in the house. When you flipped on the light switch, was it straining? I mean, was it working really hard to produce light? Light is what it is. And it just naturally illuminates everything. When's the last time you walked by? Steve's got tomatoes in his backyard, right? Somebody was growing tomatoes in our fridge, by the way. Uh, don't leave your food here. <laughs> Throw it away. Throw it away. We, don't, we have all the penicillin we could want. Uh, we don't want any more food in our fridge, so take it home with you when you go. Today we threw it away, so you're good. That uh, potluck's coming Sunday. The last time Steve walked out into his garden, he did not hear a vine straining to produce a tomato. It was the natural state of being a vine. It's what vines were designed to do. When we are what God called us to be, the natural results is that it spreads His influence everywhere. It's only when we're not true to the nature He's planted in us. You know, your natural state is not to be cursed. Not any longer. You have been born again of a blessing. To be anything other than a blessing is to go against the nature that He's put in us. Being blessed means having God's nature within us. If you look at 2 Peter 1.4, he says He has made you participate in the divine nature. That's inside of us now. It's there. He's there. And all we have to do is be that. And it's like light bringing illumination. It's like salt bringing flavor. When we lose that, what good is a light that doesn't work? How many of you just love your flashlights that have no batteries in them? I mean, they bring smiles to your faces. What if you went to shake your salt shaker and what came out was sand? How happy would you be about that? Saints, we have to be what we were called to be. Aside from the fact that it yields a blessing and that if you don't, it yields a curse. How about just the fact that something was invested in you? This was not our normal nature. This was not something we worked hard to achieve, like Buddha who got enlightenment and obese all in the same year. I don't know how that happened. This was a gift to you. It was a gift to you so that nobody could boast. 
And it was done in order that you would be a blessing to the people around you. So what high act of selfishness is it to not be what God called us to be? In uh, 1 Corinthians 6, 9-10, through 10, he said, Some of you were drunkards, and some of you were fornicators, and some of you were homosexuals. And he goes on to say all the things that some of you were. He said, but not anymore. You were washed. You were sanctified. You were changed in the Lord Jesus. We have been changed, scrubbed, white as snow, like wool. We have been made beautiful. And when we simply exist, happy to be what we are, it will be a blessing to everyone around us. Anything less than that is not only to live in a curse, it's to be less than what you were made to be. God calls us a peculiar people. Do you remember that when we started this, we said that those who obeyed His commands, the nations would take note of? God has never changed that plan. He picked one nation out of all of the nations and He said, you will be for me a peculiar people, a holy priesthood. You'll be for me a chosen people group. And his goal is to take that one people group and teach the rest of the world something. But what can he teach them if they're not obedient? That he spanks his own kids. And then when he expands it, and he includes you and I in that blessing, as Peter said, where he then applies that to us and says, you will be for me a nation of priests. What will it teach the world if we're not obedient? That he disciplines his kids. That God is no respecter of persons. But what will it teach them? What did Deuteronomy say it would teach them? If we are obedient. If we walk with the Lord. So that it would teach the nations to fear God. Fearing God is the beginning of all wisdom. And do you know what the world waits on? For us to be. To be in the state of what he's called us to be. Too long the church has stood back in word only. Too long we've simply proclaimed it. He didn't call you to be a loudspeaker. Lights don't make noise. Salt is not very vocal. They simply are a catalyst for change by virtue of what they are. Turn with me to Philippians 2. You all have tolerance for two more scriptures for me? Yeah, yeah. In the second chapter of Philippians, look at the 14th verse. Do everything without complaining or arguing. You ever been in a long line? Yes. Has anybody here been to the uh, Texas Department of Motor Vehicles? Yes. <laughs> Weren't you glad when you could fill that stuff out online? Yes. Right? Because then you didn't, you didn't have to go there anymore. Because you know when you walk up and it's number 97, right? And you're looking, and in the last hour, we've not gone through two numbers on the big screen. Everybody there is praising God. They're being the salt of the earth, bringing a little bit of joy and, and vivaciousness everywhere they go. They're being a light in all of those dark areas, right? No, not at all. What are they doing? Complaining and arguing. We said earlier that at work, when you do something wrong, it stands out. But when you do something right, 
no one notices it. This is not true in the world at large. If you stand there and do what is wrong, you argue, you complain, you're upset, you'll blend right in with the crowd. You're cursed just like they are. Mm -hmm. But if you don't do those things, if instead you are the salt of the earth and the light of the world, what does he say would happen? So that you may become blameless and pure children of God without fault in a crooked and depraved generation in which you shine like stars in a universe as you hold out the word of life. He didn't say that you had to preach. What did he say that you didn't do? Complain. Do you mean that not complaining could be preaching? Any parent of teenagers knows. Yeah. It proclaims something loud to the whole world when you're undergoing something painful with a smile rather than a frown and bad words. You ever seen somebody hit their thumb with a hammer? What do you expect to come out of their mouth? Praise God. Yeah. Probably not. And if you did, on a construction site, you're working with 30 other men, and one of them hits his thumb with a hammer and begins singing and praising Jesus, would that stand out? Yeah. Even if he just didn't curse, that might stand out, huh? You know, there was a revival in Wales, the likes of which they had never seen. The entire coal mining industry shut down. You know why? The mules who worked the wagons in and out of the coal mines did not understand the miners when they did not curse. Because all of the commands that the mules had been taught to obey were based on expletives. And these men were now saved. And they did not use those and the mules didn't know what to do. Do you think that just being a blessing would cause you to stand out? Well, yes. What is the axiom of the world? Dog eat dog, do unto him before he does unto you. Somebody who simply does not do those things will stand out. You say, well, they don't all notice. They're not all supposed to like you anyway. There should be a large group of people that don't want to do anything but persecute you because your life should make them feel guilty about theirs. In order that you may boast on the day of Christ that I did not run or labor for nothing. You understand that if we are not the salt, we're called to be. If we're not the light, we're called to be. If we do not live in a state of being those things, everything up till now was for nothing. Can you imagine that the apostle wrote those words to you? Because he didn't, right? He just wrote them to a Philippian church and you happened to get a copy of the letter. He didn't mean for those to be applied to you personally, did he? Or is this word supposed to be a mirror that causes us all to reflect on our own lives? I don't want to stand before God and say, I know you invested in me your divine nature. I know that all I had to do was live as what you've called me to be and I would have accomplished your will on earth. But I was selfish. I was immature and I preferred a curse to the blessing. And so I refused. I lived according to the old nature. I don't want to do that. When you hear the adjective blessed, it doesn't just mean indwelt by God and Christ. In the Greek, it also has a connotation of fully satisfied. This is because when you are indwelt by Jesus, the result is godliness with contentment. It's great gain. 
It's not wanting the things that are around you because you realize that though you have nothing, you possess everything of importance. Saints, many times what causes us to live under a curse is not being satisfied with what God's doing in our lives today. It causes us to yearn and strive for things that are outside of His will. And we end up leaning on our own arm as something other than salt. Something other than light. Something that looks a lot like the stench of witchcraft and rebellion. Because we simply want what we want, what we want and we want it now. To be blessed is not just to be favored by God. It's to be like God. Because His name is blessed. The last scripture that I have for you is Revelation 3. So I was kind of hoping that a few of you might actually turn to it. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. There we go. There, there. Yeah. Thank you. You know, uh, y'all mentioned a couple of times that I had a birthday yesterday, and uh, it gave me a chance to think about something. We uh, we like to celebrate things, don't we? I mean, and. Nobody says it, but we all really like to celebrate things in our own lives. This is why people keep bowling trophies, you know? I mean, it's why we mount fish on the wall. It's why there's deer heads on people's doors. It's those kind of things, right? It doesn't really matter whether there was any merit in it. I mean, true, it's exciting that we celebrate the day that you were born, but how hard did you work for that? <laughs> my mother called me and she said you know happy birthday son I said what are you talking about you're the one that did all the hard work it didn't hurt me a bit I don't even remember it to tell you the truth <laughs> hope that doesn't upset you but you know I really don't even remember it you didn't do anything of any merit or any worth to be born again the God of the universe showed you the state you were in and offered you to be something else now, we need to celebrate that not by throwing a party once a year, but by being what He's called us to be. You have been born again of incorruptible things. Certain activity is just beneath us. It's just beneath us. Princes don't go out and wade in sewers because they don't have to. They're princes. They're royalty. They're noble. Something about that would be beneath them. There are certain things that now we just are royalty. We're in Christ. There are some activities that should just be beneath you. And you know what is top on that list? Grumbling, complaining, depression, those kind of things. Oh, yeah, we all war with them. Told you I warred with it this week. But it's beneath us. Do you know why? Because it denies the fact that you have been put in a different state of being. Born again, incorruptible, raised in the power of Christ. All of those things are beneath us now. You need to shake it off and say, dirt, get down. <laughs> Force it off of you. You're better than that now. You ready for Revelation 3? Yes. 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 Good. You say, I am rich. I have acquired wealth and do not need a thing. But you do not realize that you are wretched. Pitiful, poor, blind, and naked. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined in the fire so you can become rich and white clothes to wear so that you can cover your shameful nakedness 
and salve to put on your eyes so that you can see. Those whom I love, I rebuke and discipline. So be earnest and repent. I don't think that this church is naked. What's wrong? I thought I was in Revelation 3.17. I wasn't right. Yeah, oh, I knew that you yeah. knew it. I don't think that this church is naked. I don't think that this church is blind. I don't think it's pitiful. I don't think that it's poor. But I'll tell you this. It is a dangerous thing to have to have Jesus tell you that. To make it to the place where you stand before the king and you were not self-aware enough to know. You were not introspective enough to know whether your life involved curse or blessing. What I want us to do is let judgment begin with the house of God. I want us to take an inventory of our own lives and this should not be a depressing thing. This is a chance to go to the King of Kings and say, I heard your counsel and I'm repenting, I'm changing. Lord, I want from you life and prosperity and not death and destruction. I buy from you now those rich garments to cover my nakedness. I buy from you now the salve that will heal my body. I buy from you now everything that you have said I'm to be. He will give you His very nature. All we need to do is ask. Does that make us more or less responsible for the blessing or the curse? At the end of days, we won't be able to say the word was too far from me. We won't be able to say, I couldn't get to it. It was in heaven. It was across the ocean. He set before us life and death. The question is, what do you do with it? What do you do with it today? What do you do with it tomorrow? What do you do with it after that? I want to be everything that He's called me to be. And I didn't steal that slogan from the army. I want to be like Christ. Because that's exactly what the word Christian means. Is that what you want, saints? Yes. In so many areas, you succeed wildly. But are we going to stop there? No. This is a lifelong process. But you know what? If you are any of those things, whether they were poor, mournful, meek, hungry, merciful, pure, pursuer of peace, or persecuted, you are already in God's favor. All that happens now is it's multiplied. I want to live there. And I want to avoid the curse at all costs. Y'all stand to your feet. We'll pray.